Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, one of the fastest growing movie podcasts in the world, where we discuss all things film. On this episode, we discuss Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Released in 2004, directed by Alfonso Cuaron, written by Steve Cloves, based on the book by J.K. Rowling. What is up, everyone? Welcome back to the show. This is Anthony. And this is James. We're continuing our descent into the Wizarding World, and we're going to do Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban today, which is, I think, the best Harry Potter film. It's the franchise's masterpiece. Alfonso Cuaron just completely changed the tone and direction of the entire franchise with this movie, and he knocked it out of the park. He is a genius, masterful filmmaker. Yeah, he really changed the game, and like we said with the previous episodes, Chris Columbus really set the stage for um, uh, setting the groundwork for what could be done in the franchise by laying everything out and making family-friendly movies. Um, he didn't really do anything too extreme in terms of style, but that allowed... Alfonso Cuaron to really shake it up because we were so familiar with the films. We knew that they had a huge fan base, so they were pretty much safe. Warner Brothers was safe, really taking a chance and changing what it looked like, what it felt like, knowing that it would still be successful. And that gave Alfonso Cuaron the ability to really put his signature style on the film. And but before this, you hadn't really seen this kind of filmmaking too often in mainstream movies, um, handheld, long takes. Uh, uh, Spielberg does it every once in a while. But in terms of like a, a family movie, a huge fantasy film, pretty rare at this point. And Azkaban is probably my favorite Harry Potter film. Maybe if they made the Deathly Hallows films as one movie, I think that as a one movie that would have been epic. But you can't do but that. You can't, one do, movie. That. You can't yeah. do that. Yeah, movie. So otherwise, I would say Azkaban is the strongest film. Yeah, and so Alfonso Cuaron, he's one of our personal favorite filmmakers. I mean, Children of Men is one of my favorite movies. Romo is fantastic, amazing director, and he created this drastic shift tone, which, like you were just talking about, the series really needed because they needed to modernize it. They needed to spice it up. And Alfonso made the film so much more relatable by doing this. And like you said, long takes, handheld, steady cam, a lot of that, which are, are staples in Alfonso's filmmaking style. But he also brought our world into the Harry Potter world, which they didn't really do in the first two. For example, I think the most important thing to make it modern was the modern clothing. So in the in the at Hogwarts, when they're not in classes, of course, they still have the robes when they're wearing around the during hours of school, but outside of school hours, they're wearing normal clothing. It makes us relate with the characters more, makes it more grounded. What they also did with the clothing, not just wearing modern clothes, but uh, Alfonso Cuaron encouraged all of the young actors who played students to basically wear their wardrobes for class however they felt comfortable. And that's why, especially in um, Hagrid's class, when they're outside with Buckbeak, and you see all the kids, they, some of the kids pulled out their shirts from their pants and they loosened their ties. And some kids even pulled their ties completely off. And then, But then you have students like Hermione who's like still very neatly dressed. So he encouraged the kids to be like, however you feel comfortable wearing the school uniform in a setting like this where you're not in a classroom, but you're outside on the Hogwarts grounds. So, and Hagrid's the teacher, so he's obviously going to be much more lax about how you look. He encouraged the kids to do whatever you want with the clothing. And that's why you see oftentimes the, the clothing isn't perfect. And they, it's like how, like we went to Catholic school and we had to wear uniforms, but you still did your what you could to make your uniform look cooler. Yeah, some kids wore yeah. Converse's. And yeah, a lot of girls somehow got away with 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 yoga pants. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. And like Uggs. So you always tried to like sneak past the rules and break the break the rules because you're a teenager. Bit. You're yeah. angsty. Exactly. So that's more accurate to what teens would be like. They'd want to like oh, I just want to 
loosen up my shirt and get rid of this collar for a, for an hour. Before we continue, if you want to support Raiders of the Lost podcast, the best thing you can do is share us with your family and friends, as well as become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast. Patrons get perks like personalized videos, podcast schedules, top tier patrons get a monthly shout out on the podcast, and you'll also have exclusive access to bonus episode, full length bonus episodes of the show only patrons can view. You'll also be entered into monthly patron only giveaways. Head on over to RaidersOfTheLostPodcast.com to check out all of our sources of content, our merch, and our custom movie posters, as well as become a patron there. Be sure to follow wherever you're listening, hit the notification bell. If you're watching on YouTube, subscribe and hit the like button. That reminds me of a story that I read where Alfonso wanted to bond with uh, the, the trio, Daniel, Emma, and Rupert, as well as them get closer to their characters. So he had, before filming, he had each of them write a one-page essay about their character, like um, Daniel writing about Harry. And so, of course, in Harry fashion, Daniel Radcliffe wrote, wrote like a very nice one-page essay about Harry Potter, and it was an, an amazing. It was just it is what it is. Uh, Emma Watson wrote a 16-page thesis, basically, <laughs> on Hermione Granger, and then Rupert Grint never turned his in, in, in classic Ron fashion. So they're all essentially perfectly cast people. Yeah, they're perfect as, as the characters. But what's so essential about this movie is because the Harry Potter franchise, the stories, they get darker and darker as the books um, came out, and they became more adultish in their themes. And the kids are growing up. And the, we you can were, tell in this one for sure. Yeah, exactly. They they're all a lot, they're a lot taller, and they they look like a lot more mature from when you compare them to Sorcerer's Stone. And so the the movies they had to grow up with the fan base as well because we were the same age as the actors. And by this point, we were fourteen, I think fourteen or thirteen. So we were in middle school and and maybe freshmen in high school. And so we were we were getting we were going through growth spurts. We were going through puberty, and so our views on the world were changing. We weren't innocent little kids anymore. And so the movies couldn't be innocent anymore either, as well. And so Quaron uh, wisely made it dark. Made it dark. He, shoot, he showed us a lot of intense themes. Uh, it's even scary at times. And JK also put those themes in the book when he in, top, in terms of Sirius Black, a mass murderer on the, on the loose, and especially in terms of the Dementors, the, one of the greatest villains of the entire franchise. Yeah, and the movie is just hip. For the time, it's very hip, and it's fun. The first act is just fun, 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 fun. We're introduced to new music from John Williams, which, in addition to Alfonso changing the tone of the film, John Williams changed the tone of the music from what he did with Sorcerer's Stone and Chamber of Secrets. He added a lot of like great jazz themes and elements, like especially on the night bus. That's such a fun song. Take it away! And, the, and then the Bogart scene, there's a great jazz theme going on, too. So he modernized the sound of his score for it compared to the first two films. And we're also introduced to a ton of new important characters in the Harry Potter world. So we get Remus Lupin, Sirius Black, Professor Trelawney, Peter Pettigrew, as well as other new magical creatures, like we just said, Dementors and Bogarts, which are just more fun, more magic. And also what I love about this film that they did is the addition of Lumos. So Lumos is the spell where you light, you turn your wand's hip into a flashlight, basically. And I, I'm trying to think if that was done in the first two films. I can't remember off the top of my head. Maybe I think it, a teacher did it. Maybe in shape. I actually don't think. I don't so. think. I don't, I don't think, think I remember so. yeah. seeing it done. It's in the books, but Lumos is using the books a lot at school. It's an early spell you learn. It's but, a very simple spell. But Alfonso incorporated it in the screenwriters incorporate Steve Close incorporated it into Prisoner of Azkaban, which then became a staple for the rest of the films. And I love it so much because it's it's more realistic. Although I love the opening shot of the movie where we're we're pushing into Harry doing the Lumos spell under his blanket that's illegal technically he's not supposed to be doing magic yeah, yeah. outside of school yeah. but it's still a fun way to introduce the movie and they 
Alfonso Cuaron, he likes to light his, his scenes practically, so you can often see where the lights are coming from. And he uses the wands, especially in this film, to light up the scenes when it's when they're at nighttime or in dark. Like especially that hallway scene with Harry and Snape and Lupin, where the only light is coming from their wand tips, and it's a really brilliant way to show the scene. And I, I love the Marauders map. It's such a great sequence. And the design- Did you say Marauders? Marauders map. There you go. Someone's gonna call you. I up. got I got yelled at once. <laughs> Unsubscribed. <laughs> 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 Gonna get in trouble. But the Marauder, Marauder's map is such a brilliant and important piece of information in a, an artifact in the in the entire story. And I love how they the design of this film is fantastic. Uh, Alfonso had a lot of his Mexican um, uh, co- um, co-workers and that he's always collaborated with on his films previously work on this film. So they shaked it up a little bit, especially the wardrobe. Um, the costume designer actually changed the school uniforms. She gave uh, Dumbledore more colorful outfits, and she actually became the wardrobe designer for the rest of the entire series. So she had a, she made, she left a big mark on the film. But the production design is fantastic. And what I love is that in the first two movies, you, you saw all different parts of Hogwarts, but you didn't see how it was connected, what the layout of the castle was like, what the layout of the grounds were like. Some of the wide shots, so, yeah. Yeah, here and there. But uh, essentially, every scene was like its own independent thing. But because Quaron likes to use long takes, and especially during transitions, he likes to like move the camera through the grounds, like especially following like that bird as it travels through different areas. And the whopping willow. Yeah, and the whopping willow. So he let he showed what the geography of the grounds were like, what it's like when you when you leave the Great Hall, what's there. And he shows like after the Great Hall, there's a hallway where the staircases are. And then he shows when you go down past these these old runes, then you go down the hill and there's Hog- then the Hagrid's huts right there. So he showed how a lot of the areas of Hogwarts Castle were actually connected by showing the entire sequence from one- from point A to point B. Yeah, and also Prisoner of Azkaban, it touches on the theme of politics, I think, for the first time in the Harry Potter franchise, which becomes a, a growing uh, theme throughout the-, the rest of the books and movies because... J.K. Rowling introduces us it's pretty much growling, growling. Sorry, <laughs> not growling. <laughs> we have a good scene with Cornelius Fudge and Harry Potter after Harry runs away, gets on the night bus, and takes it to the Leaky Cauldron. We deal with the Co- Leaky Cauldron. That's in London. Yeah, <laughs> you hear that? <laughs> and we met Cornelius Fudge in Fudge. <laughs> I can't talk today. We met Cornelius Fudge in Chamber of Secrets when they're taking Harry away. I mean, Hagrid. <laughs> oh my have god! You even read the books? I've never read them. When they're taking Harry, I gotta slow down. When they're taking Hagrid to Azkaban and Chamber of Secrets and his hut. But he that's a great representation of how much the tone shift in terms of the wardrobe and design. Like he looked like a colonial person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same yeah. thing with Mr. Weasley. But no, his outfit in this one, he's it's got like uh it's like a business suit yeah. with like the stripes. I don't know what you would call that style, but it's got, got that fabric and it's his robes. But we're dealing with the Ministry of Magic now and the Minister of Magic, and you can clearly tell that this guy is a lying politician because yeah. he's he's not being upfront with Harry, he's keeping things from Harry, and you can tell that as a politician, and if you know the lore and the rest of the stories, they use Harry pretty much when he's when he's useful to them, the Ministry of Magic, the Daily Prophet. They use him for press and, and everything like that. And this is like the start of them using Harry Potter as like a totem in a way. Yeah, because he's the most famous wizard. So if they can if they keep him on his side, he's beneficial to them for sure. And then obviously in Deathly Hallows. Uh, when he becomes a target and a wanted person, then they use him negatively to influence the populace as well. Undesirable number Undesirable one. Undesirable number one. Let's Absolutely. <laughs> but I love the new characters in this film, especially. Um, and the thing is with these movies, it's like 
whenever there are new characters, you you get new world class actors. Like the actors in the Harry Potter series are like the best of the best, especially from the UK. Like UK's best actors and actresses, they're all like so many of them have been in Harry Potter. It's they're just insane. waiting at the call to yeah, get their wand. Exactly. It's like Gary Oldman is in this now, and in um, uh, Remus Lupin, what David Thewlis is fantastic, and uh, Emma Thomas is amazing as Professor Trelawney. And what's great is that. These are new characters, but we don't understand yet how important they are, and especially Trelawney. You could argue Professor Trelawney is one of the most important characters in the entire franchise. Absolutely agree. Because she is the one who um, spoke the prophecy of uh, one cannot live while the other survives and all that jazz about Voldemort and, and Harry, which caused Voldemort, when he heard that prophecy, to attempt to kill the boy. So she is vital to the entire story ever taking off to begin with. Yeah, she's a really ironic character because she seems like she has no idea what she's doing. She seems yeah. like she has no talent and doesn't have the seeing eye, but really she makes... Two very, three very important yeah. predictions, really. Or is it two? It's two, I think. I don't know. The, I don't know what the third is. So there's three. It's the one to the dark power, the dark lord, and then the one, the prophecy that Harry tries to get at the order of, in order of Phoenix, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. That's a different one than the original, I believe, right? That prophecy is the original one. Okay, it's the original. That, yeah. And then it's this, in there. and then she actually makes a real prophecy in front of Harry Potter in that's this right. one too. So, yeah, that's right. So she she actually does make a real prediction again. And it's funny because in the books, Dumbledore's like, oh, maybe she does actually see things. <laughs> yeah, because she seems so clueless. She seems like kind of like a, a buffoon. And the way Emma Thomas plays her is, is so funny and for laughs. But and she doesn't. She's kind of unaware of her own abilities, and they just happen out of her control. But she, I mean, maybe that's the way real um, um, psychics work in this world, where yeah. it just. Uh, the the power takes control of them rather than them bringing it out. Not consistently either. Yeah. It's like every 15 years. Yeah, and I love how Hermione hates the entire idea of that class and because she's so she's so practical and logical. Like the, the spirituality and like astronomy is like the stupidest thing in the world to her. Yeah, and so Hermione, speaking of her, she has this like secret that she's trying to keep from the guys yeah, the whole yeah. time. She's just popping up everywhere. And I love when we finally learn what's going on with her later Did on. Did you see her get here? <laughs> <laughs> when did she get here? But um, I love how we're introduced early on to an early villain, a new one, which is Aunt Marge. And she's a great character because she she seems to loathe Harry even worse than than Vernon and Petunia. And she treats him like like scum of the earth, basically. I wonder what their parents were like. For real. They must have been a horrible Can you parents. imagine? Yeah. Because uh, she's she's actually Vernon's sister. Yeah. So she's not Petunia's sister. As we talked about in the last one, in, in the first one, Petunia's spite for Harry is because of her envy and jealousy of Lily and her not being a wizard as well. But D D Vernon and... Marge's parents, holy crap, what kind of people were they? They must have been very classist. Probably. Because she, like, looks down on Harry because he's his parents are dead, and she thinks that she talks about the parents, like, being alcoholics and just and, the father. And just, yeah. And so. That's a lie. That's a lie. Shut up. <laughs> but um, I love that actress, actually, Alfonso Cuaron cast her again. She plays the nurse in No Country, in uh, Children of Men. Harry. And just the first act is introduced with so many new struggles and conflicts in his life. And starting with Aunt Marge, and he's trying to control his temper that is just growing and growing pretty much every day. Runs away from home, blowing up his aunt in trouble with the ministry that he thinks he's in. Um, and then he doesn't get his permission slip by signed by his uncle, so he's unable to attend Hogsmeade with the rest of his class. Then he also learns from from Mr. Weasley that Sirius Black is out to try to kill him. He's escaped from Azkaban because he wants to. He thinks that he wants to kill him. Um, and then dealing with the truth, 
that he think when he learns that Sirius is actually his godfather and his Sirius Black betrayed his parents, and then he wants to kill Her- Sirius himself. He wants to find him and do it. He was, he was their, their friends. friends. <laughs> <laughs> so that's just like the first half of the movie. He's just so many new problems. The book is it's actually pretty scary the first time you read it. You're it's very thrilling because there's so much. I mean, the first two stories, the conflicts were kind of like you didn't see them or like the Sorcerer's Stone was the first one. And then, you know, Chamber, you didn't figure out until like the third act. But with this one, the danger is present right away. It's not especially, like with, yeah. especially with the Grim. With it's the like dog. his life isn't on the line for the first. But aside from Dobby trying to kill him. Yeah, yeah. In Chamber of Secrets. Yeah. Besides that. But yeah, he's he's even when he's on the before he gets on the night bus, he thinks yeah. that dog's gonna come kill him. Yeah, and the dog is it the dog you see it a couple more times in the, in the books? book. You see yeah. him like a few more. The times. Grim appears like outside their window yeah. when Ron's asleep and yeah. in a few other situations. Yeah, but I think I just think they didn't have time for it, and we'll eventually learn. Obviously, it's Sirius Black because he's an Animagus, and and I love just the dark themes of this film, and especially I think this film introduces so much more to the scope of the world in terms of prisons and especially uh azkaban prison and it's it's such a terrifying place to think of to be surrounded by dementors and i think dementors is our one of jk's greatest creation and it's such a great uh creature and villain for the franchise and apparently jk uh created them as a manifestation of depression because she was went through depression at one time in her life and out of that experience she thought what if there's a creature that has that feels like depression and acts as depression by sucking the happiness out of you and and feeding on all of the good things about you and what in your life and it's such a brilliant uh, creature I think. I need to pause the show right now to tell you about one of our great sponsors, Manscaped, the leaders in men's grooming. This company helps keep the lights on for the show, so please check out their products at manscaped.com using our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for twenty percent off and free shipping year-round. Judging by Dumbledore's beard, there are clearly no spells in the wizarding world for grooming, but Manscaped has changed the game for grooming with their Lawnmower 4.0, which is literally a rocket ship for your personal grooming needs. Personally, I have two Lawnmower 4.0s, one for my face and one for my galleons. I recommend getting your hands on their new performance package 4.0, which is a bundle of their products at a lower cost. It has a ton of stuff. And we've had pretty much everything from Manscaped sent to us. Their their wipes, their deodorizers, colognes, t-shirts, boxer briefs are super comfortable. So join the over 2 million men and wizards worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free shipping using our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Yeah, and we're introduced to them on the Hogwarts Express when it, when it stops in its tracks for no reason. No one understands. And it's brilliant how Alfonso just had like... The the everything turned to ice, all the liquid turned to ice, everything gets so cold and freezes. Dumbledore calls them vicious creatures. They will not distinguish between the one they want and the one who gets in their way. And we're also introduced to the Dementor's kiss and the idea of that, where the Dementor will not just kill you, it won't even do that. It'll suck your soul out of you, which is worse than death. It's like the most terrifying thing you can think of. It's yeah. horrifying. And because and they guard Azkaban like we're talking about, which is where Sirius Black was. That's where Haggard was in Chamber of Secrets and back in the day when, when the Chamber of Secrets was first opened. And the, the mentor's case is like the ultimate corporal punishment imaginable. And the Ministry of Magic has placed the Dementors at Hogwarts because... Harry doesn't know it yet. Sirius is coming after him. That's what they all think. And so they're playing host to the Dementors, which Dumbledore is not very happy about because they start to interfere with students, especially they become enthralled with Harry in a way for some reason. Harry doesn't understand why. And it's not until later that Lupin explains to him that the Dementors are so attracted to him because he has real pain and real loss in his life. 
I love the introduction of Lupin when he saves them on the train when we first see the, the Patronus spell for the first time. And we don't even know what it is yet. But what's so cool about Lupin's character, it's a little like Easter egg thing that JK threw in that's not even, she doesn't even explain it in the books. But so obviously, when they get on the train, uh, he's passed out. And then so they're able to talk to each other secretly without him having to hear because he's like out cold. And the reason why he's out cold is because that date, like what, September, one of the first days in September that year, um, J JK brilliantly matched it with the calendar set in that date in that in that year where the night before was a full moon. And that's in, like in real life, that really happened on the day before this date. It was a full moon. Therefore, the night before, Lupin was a werewolf. And so now today, he is com his body's completely exhausted. And that's why he's so dead asleep in the train. Just eat some chocolate afterwards and he's good. It helps. It really helps. I love Remus Lupin. He's one of my favorite characters in the entire franchise. He's very intelligent. And he... He really, seems like the best teacher imaginable. He, in my opinion, Lupin is really Harry's first father figure. Of course, you know, people might think Hagrid is, but I see Hagrid as more of like an uncle or like a brother kind of figure. You don't think Dumbledore at this point? Not at this point, not yet. Dumbledore, yes, he, you know, he knew Harry as a, as a baby when he brought him to Privet Drive. But up until this point, Dumbledore and Harry have really only had a handful of conversations. But Lupin becomes the first like real father figure that Harry becomes close with. You know, Harry has class with him with Defense Against the Dark Arts. And then they have their own personal lessons for defending against Dementors. And this is where he become, they develop a very strong bond. And it, to me, it's like a father-son relationship. Not saying that Dumbledore is not, but I think that takes a few years to progress. You have a good point because Lupin is also a connection to Harry's exactly. past, his parents, because he eventually learns that Lupin was friends with James and Lily. And um, he'll eventually learn that he was part of the crew. But he's the first person that he's ever met who knew his parents personally. Yeah, so exactly. So Harry through Lupin is learning more about his parents. He's learning that he's more like them than he could ever think of. You know, of course, he has his mother's eyes, but he looks just like James. And Lupin's providing that strong father-like presence that Harry's always been lacking. He's only had Vernon as his father figure in his life, but that man's shown him no point of kindness in his entire life. And Lupin instills confidence, hard work in Harry, as well as showing him kindness and he's just an incredible figure in Professor to Harry. And also, the big, most important part of this story, he teaches Harry the Patronus charm, mm -hmm. which will come in handy with that amazing epic scene. And the Patronus is—it's a difficult spell for young wizards to learn. Usually, you don't begin learning the Patronus until like your fifth year, I think, at and, least. Yeah, and so fifth or sixth year, yeah. And so he's Lupin is teaching Harry privately how to do the Patronus charm because I think that Lupin knows that. He's going to be at, need to use it eventually at some point because of the situation that Harry is in in terms of uh, the Dementors being around him. Harry having the the Harry known to be uh, wandering off on his own and going on adventures and the fact that, you know, there's trouble surrounding him. So I think that Lupin's preparing him not just to deal with his past, but to, he thinks that I think he knows that you're, eventually you might need this spell sometime soon true but really it's harry who asks him to do it because before this harry is at the quidditch match oh you're then, right yeah and then yeah, the dementors yeah. come and attack harry and he falls and dumbledore does that crazy spell which prevents yeah. him from dying from falling three thousand yeah. feet from the air and i really like the quidditch scene in this movie but i wish it was longer it's kind of short and also they're on time constraints in this movie it's so dense compared to chamber of secrets and sorcerer's stone there's so much to fit in so they had to change a lot from the book, obviously, but I think what they did in terms of making changes and additions to the book from to the movie from the book, I think they did it most effectively with the Azkaban. Yeah, and and 
Alfonso, he tried to do some things that JK didn't approve of, but ultimately they kind of found a balance between what he wanted to add and what she didn't want added and what she eventually approved. I think the biggest change he made to the castle itself was he added a sundial on the grounds, which she approved, but it's not in the books at all. But he also, he wanted to add a cemetery and she disapproved that idea because eventually nobody knew, but a cemetery would become very important. Um, in a couple more of the books, and she didn't want too many cemeteries in the in the world of Hogwarts, and so she denied that. But ultimately, they found a balance, and she was actually very elated when she found out that he was being pursued by David Heyman, the producer, because uh, he broke out with the film Itumama Tambien, which is a, kind of like a very adult road comedy about two young guys who go on a trip with a, a, a recently single woman who's like living her last moments of life. So they, she's just trying to have fun and experience life. And it's very sexual and very adult themed, but also very raunchy in terms of like Mexican cinema. It's like it's like a, an American Pie-esque movie, but it's much more serious and well-made. And so David Heyman, the producer of all the Harry Potter films, he's the one who bought the rights to, to make the movies. He pursued... Alfonso Cuaron after that after he saw that film and a lot of people when they found out that Alfonso was tapped to make this film they were kind of worried that well, this guy who made this very R-rated adult comedy in Mexico is going to be the director of a Harry Potter movie but I, I think that his instincts were correct in terms of Alfonso injecting his his artistic style and vision into this world to to shake things up and JK was also a huge fan of that movie and when she found out about Alfonso Cuaron being being selected, she thought it was a, a great choice. Although the first choice was Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, yeah. And Guillermo convinced Alfonso to do it, even though Alfonso had never read any of the books. And Guillermo was like, do it, read the books immediately, you idiot. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Guillermo, he wanted to do it, I read, but he was already uh, committed to doing Hellboy, which mm -hmm. was a big passion project for him because he was like a huge fan of the Hellboy comics as a boy. And making the movies was like one of his biggest dreams. And so he had to turn it down reluctantly to, to do Hellboy. Yeah, and Prisoner of Azkaban has some of my favorite Harry Potter scenes in general. Some of these sequences are incredible. And one of them, obviously, is Buckbeak's flight when Harry oh, yeah. is teaching his class. And then Malfoy gets hit, obviously, and then we, <laughs> he deals with his arm. But Harry his shows his true character when he accidentally volunteers to, to interact with Buckbeak. And then... He shows his confidence and he shows his bravery when he gets on top of Buckbeak and, the, and they go for that flight and it's epic music. And well, it's what Hagrid throws him on it. Yeah, he throws him on it. But it's, a, it's an incredible scene and I love that moment for Harry because he's, for this character, for his life that he's lived to now, he's in the Wizarding World, he's at his home, and he's he's excelling at so many great things like this. And also, the Bogart scene. I think it's really important for the entire film and for Harry as well, too, because obviously the Bogart, when you stand in front of it, it, it shows your greatest fear. And then Lupin teaches them to turn it into something funny with their thoughts. And um, before Harry goes into it, Lupin stands in front of him and we get the metaphor. I mean, the 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 foreshadow of the glowing orb, the the, the moonlight, the moon, the full moon, I mean, in front of him, which only Hermione understands what that means, because but. Lupin did it because he thought that Lord Voldemort would come out from the closet as the he thought the Bogart would take that form, but the form took the shape of a Dementor instead, which shows Lupin that Harry fears fear rather than death, which is very wise. Very wise. <laughs> I actually there's a question I have about Lupin in terms of him keeping him who he what he really is a secret, because when when Snape takes over that class for that week when Lupin is discharged because he just dealt with being a werewolf, 
so he can't he can't be a teacher for a couple of days. And when when Snape starts taking over his lessons, he immediately skips ahead to page three hundred and ninety four, which is way further than where they were. And Hermione even points out like we're not supposed to learn about werewolves until like later in the year. And I'm curious, this why did Snape do that exactly? Did was it? It could be one of two things. Did Snape? Um, Fast forward to the lesson about werewolves as a way to, you know, prepare the kids um, to be able to identify Lupin as a way of protecting themselves and and keeping an, an eye out and recognizing the signs of who what a werewolf would be like in terms of when they're in their human form. Or was it a way of Snape um, secretly trying to get Lupin found out publicly for what he is? It's I think it's both. I think it's more the latter because... Snape, of course, yes, he spends his entire career, as we know, protecting Harry and, you know, trying to get the defense against the Dark Arts job. But he hated James Potter. He hated the Marauders. He yeah. hated all those guys. He didn't like Lupin, even though, like, in the books they go into more detail, like, they saved Snape's life, even though he explains that, like, they're the ones who put him in danger in yeah, the first yeah. place. But he doesn't like them, and he doesn't like the fact that Lupin is there teaching. So I think he wanted someone to figure out that Lupin was a werewolf to get him kicked out of school because Snape wants the job, yeah. and Snape doesn't like Lupin. And he's not going to blatantly do it and, and um, disobey Dumbledore's orders because we know Dumbledore made sure that he doesn't try to do anything like that to Lupin and make sure Lupin is safe. And yeah, makes he the makes potion a potion for him. For him yeah. but, but if he gives the hints out there and he knows Hermione is a very clever person, but he probably doesn't understand that Hermione would never do that to Lupin. Yeah, so I think it's definitely like a little more sinister where he wants someone to identify that Lupin's a yeah, werewolf to 100%. get him kicked out. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, yeah, it's a great scene and I, that's definitely going to be his motivation. Snape is a very complex character. We're not saying that he's not a great hero in the entire franchise, but he, he is part villainous you know he was a villain in his past he was yeah, a death, he was death eater. eater yeah so he and he does have these strong emotional ties to the marauders yeah like they were his his school bullies yeah so basically he, they made his life miserable so if he can get the opportunity to get him kicked out good and then at the end of the film once once he finds out that they're on the shrieking shack he wants to get them he wants to give Sirius the kiss of death and he wants to get Lupin kicked out as well yeah exactly like he's he's happy to have them cornered at yeah. that point so I think Snape has sinister means despite being the fact that he is a hero in the end yeah 100% and I think, obviously, one of the biggest new introductions of this film is clearly Sirius Black, a fan favorite of the entire franchise. And Gary Oldman is perfect as Sirius because Sirius, he's like that cool uncle. He, he's like he's like <laughs> he's like me. Yeah. <laughs> he's got like a, a like a rock star quality. You yeah. know what I mean? Like larger than life uh, and so likable. And he I think he even based his performance off John Lennon. Uh, and the thing is. It's so brilliant, this movie, how it lays out Sirius as we think he's this horrible villain at first, and he's terrifying, and especially when we see him for the first time, he's very erratic, and he seems villainous because he's been locked up in prison for so long. He's clearly lost his sense of like uh, how, to act, how to act and behave, and so he's kind of uh, on loose ends, you know, and he's, he's very scary in terms of his mannerisms, you know what I mean? But that's just because he's been in a cell for so long. And so he seems like a villain even the first time we see him. But Gary Oldman's performance is so brilliant because it goes from being a villain to I think the more time he spends with Harry, the more he becomes very much like a loving father figure-esque. And Sirius will ultimately become uh, the, the most important father figure in Harry's life in terms of an emotional connection. More on Sirius Black in a few minutes, but let's take our intermission break and have some fun with some fun movie trivia, guys. And this intermission is brought to you by Manscaped. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout at manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping. 
Let's do this thing. We'll begin with our movie quote competition. I have one from me and one from our fan, Nathaniel Johnson. Let's hear it, Nathaniel. This is actually a TV show quote. I had to look it up because I had no idea what it was, but you actually might get it. Okay. Popular TV show. Your lips are moving and you're complaining about something. That's whining. This one's been killed six times. You don't hear him bitching about it. That's um, Game of Thrones. And that is... Hmm, what character is it? Is it... Let me do it again. Yeah, say it again. Your lips are moving and you're complaining about something. That's whining. This one's been killed six times. You don't hear him bitching about it. It's not Tyrion. No. It, it's not... It, but I know the crew. I just can't think of who specifically it is. You want a hint? Yeah, he's really big. Oh, it's, it's the Hound? Yeah. Yeah, it's the Hound. Yeah. Nice. And then he then he fights him. Yeah. What's the guy? The guy with the, the fire sword. He keeps getting resurrected. Yeah. I can't remember his name. Well, good job. Thanks. Nice. All right. Here's one from me. I suggest you ask Dickie yourself. Otello's is on Della Croce, just off Corso. I'll say it again. I suggest you ask Dickie yourself. Otello's is on oh. Della Croce. <laughs> Della Croce. Just off Corso. Yeah, it's uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character and talented Mr. Ripley. No, it's, it's, uh, it's Tom Ripley who says that too. Oh, it's Tom Ripley says it's he him. He says yeah. it's him. Oh, you, now you're telling He's me like, directions. Oh, I'll tell us on Della Croce just off Corso. Uh, last time I saw you, you didn't know your ass from your hand. <laughs> now you're giving me directions. <laughs> Tom, 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 Tom. How's the peeking? How's the peeping, Tom? <laughs> All right, here's my movie quote. The things you own end up owning you. Fight Club. Yeah. Sorry. I should have given everyone a chance. Yeah, man. So you're always yelling at me about not I'm giving so people excited. Time. See what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you just want to shout it on rooftops. I love Veronica Vaughn. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's guess the movie release year. Shaun of the Dead. 2003. 2004. Oh, I was thinking 2004. Oh, man. She said it. Oh, man. Okay. I did Junior. Junior. Because Emma Thomas is in it. Is she really? Yeah. Oh, she, she plays the love interest that's of That's right. Yeah, oh the doctor. God. The doctor, you're right. Wow, this is an old movie. It's got to be. How eight, old is it's it? It's got to be the 80s, how, right? How old Cause is this it? Because is, this is after Twins or before Twins, I'm thinking. I'm going to say. I actually don't. I, I don't know. 1988. 1994. Oh, I was way off. It might have, I think it was after Twins. Yeah, because Twins, Twins was such a success. Yeah, because actually Twins, Arnold is still pretty young. Like he's, he's still got like that, like he looks like he's in his 20s still. Yeah, yeah. Early 30s. No, he's yeah, late, mid 30s. But he still looks young. Yeah. He's super tan. That guy looked like he was in his 30s when he was 18. <laughs> <laughs> he looked like a, a 35 year old. It's like Dwayne Johnson. Yeah, yeah. Like his high school, yeah, his like, high school photo. That, no, he's like 15. He's yeah. got a mustache. He's like 6'3". He's jacked. gigantic. <laughs> it's like, that's a 15 year old. Are you kidding me? See, that's, that's the genetic gene specimen. lottery right yeah. there. Oh my God. Like when I was 15, I was like still chubby short little kid. Stubby. Yeah. Playing Pokemon <laughs> and baseball. Okay, movie pop quiz. What do you got? In Ocean's Eleven, the plan involves robbing three casinos simultaneously. What are the three casinos? And oh. they're they're real Vegas casinos. Yeah, the Bellagio one, the um the MGM two, Caesar's Palace. Uh, no, it's the Mirage. Oh, the Mirage. Two or three is good. That's good. Thanks. Yeah. Nice job. Oh, uh, yeah. I don't know why. They just go to Caesars to watch the waterfall we, is what it is. We got to do the Ocean's Trilogy. I love those movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're good. They're great. They're always, none of them are bad. They're great. Yeah, they're all, they're all so fun. Yeah. 
I think Ocean's 12 might be the best one of them all, too. I think it's a really strong movie. Yeah. yeah. Okay, here's my pop quiz question. How many Oscar-winning movies for Best Picture has Brad Pitt produced with his company, Plan B? A lot. Wow. Um, so Oscar-winning. How many? Oh, winning? Yeah. 12 Years a Slave for sure. Yes. What else has he produced that one? Three. Three, yeah. yeah. Can you name them? So you got 12 years. Million Dollar Baby, did he produce that? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm throwing guesses at the wall right now. <laughs> Want me to tell you? Hold on. Um, I'm trying to think of the times I've seen him on stage for, for Best Picture. Generally, he doesn't go on stage just because he, he doesn't want to take away from it. Yeah. He, he actually, producers usually do, but he never does. He did on 12 years because the entire production and cast went up to yeah. celebrate. All right, uh, tell me. Moonlight. Oh, yeah. And The Departed. Oh, he did Departed. That's yeah. Man. And how? so he's actually, a ton of his movies that he produced have been Oscar nominees. Yeah. How many do you think? Probably eight. Nine. Nine. Nine Oscar nominees. It's crazy. Damn. Yeah. He's also, he, he produced like a, a few of Adam McKay's movies. So Big Short and Vice. He's, he produces a lot of stuff, but some of his movies don't make much money. So, but yeah. because he's Brad Pitt. Yeah, Killing Them Softly made no money. Killing Them Softly, I watched it again recently for the second time. The first time I watched it, I really didn't like it that much, but I liked it more. But like the entire character of James Gandolfini is just wastes the entire plot. Yeah, he just bitches the whole time. He's he the waste of a character. Yeah. But the ending scene is so badass. If they changed Gandolfini's character and made him less of a... Because he literally complains. That's of, what it's like in the book, though. Yeah, but they should have fixed that. They should have just made it a little more interesting. Yeah, it slows it down and really makes it a little boring. Yeah. those. That's Honestly, if, if they changed that, it would have been a very strong movie. Because it's a really... Aside from that, it's actually really good. There's some yeah. great scenes. Andrew and Dominic's a great director. Great characters, great acting. Yeah, the same director as um, Jesse James. America's a business. Now fucking, fucking pay me. Fuck you, pay me. Fuck you, pay me, yeah. That's a great line with uh, Richard Jenkins. Okay, biggest hater of the week. Who we got? I got a couple. Wow. We've actually been getting so much love, it was hard to find some haters. We get a lot of great comments, so, yeah. but we just don't share those. But we appreciate everyone who does leave the great comments. Okay. Okay, so I have <laughs> biggest hater. Um... We posted. I posted a clip about There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men about how they filmed at the same time in the same desert and that famous oil fire scene in There Will Be Blood. It made such a large black smoke cloud that it affected the shooting of No Country because they were like a couple of miles away. And no, that, they were like more than a couple. Maybe, maybe a mile away. It's far away, but it took yeah. over. It was in the sky. Yeah, so it was just a huge black cloud in the sky. So No Country had to stop shooting that day and recontinue the next day. And so I made a clip about that. And someone named on Twi on TikTok, Texan Jordan, wrote, I hated both of those movies. Watch them only because they won awards and dislike them both. Hey, I mean, you like what you like, but those are two masterpieces. Yeah, two I mean, I don't know how old he is, but a lot of younger people don't like the slow-paced dramas and thrillers. But two of my top 20 films of all time. And then there's another one. Uh, I, we talked about Training Day and Denzel Washington's performance. And someone wrote, Terry... Terry Tyrell one wrote, "He's a good actor, but he was not believable in this many in this movie. Too many lame lines. He's so good in this movie. <laughs> They're just haters, man. Yeah. But then I got a couple of uh, wannabe haters who are actually fans that they want to get. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, but they're so funny. So Cole Kale Witter on YouTube, uh, uh, when he watched the second Harry, the first Harry Potter episode, he wrote, "No costumes this time, slacking." 
and then he said unsubscribed. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't. He didn't unsubscribe. Yeah. But... We, we know. We know you love us, Kale. We we love you too. I wore the glasses today for you guys. Oh, that was nice. And then uh, on TikTok, Mean Machine ninety six. I was talking about an actor's performance in a movie, and they wrote, "Easy, I could do this role, no problem." Y'all really think it's that hard? <laughs> I think it was Danny DeLewis talking about him. And then someone wrote, LOL, this isn't easy. And then he replied to them saying, shh, I'm trying to get a shout out. <laughs> so what's up, Mean Machine 96? Yeah, a lot of people don't realize some people are doing it just for fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. On this day in film history, today's July 1st. So we had Terminator 2 Judgment Day was released in 1991. And then also the same weekend, Armageddon was released in 1998. Same week? Oh, different year. So Same weekend. different. Yeah. yeah. Seven year difference. Yeah. yeah, a few years. Wow. Streaming recommendation for me, I'm going with Dodgeball. It's on Amazon <laughs> Prime. This movie is just so ridiculously funny and absurd. And it was June 18th was, or, yeah, June 18th was the, the date in the movie where Average Joe's wins in the tournament Global gym, so I made a great post about it. But it's like, like it was a real event. It's like yeah. the 17-year anniversary <laughs> of of uh, Global Gym's upset versus Average Joe's. There's like that was just like peak Ben Stiller. He's just doing that in Zoolander. It, he he was so good, and that character is ridiculous. Michelle, <laughs> no one makes me bleed my own blood. Nobody. It's taking. It's a metaphor. I bet that actually happened in real life. <laughs> taking the bolt by the horns. I read it in a book. <laughs> Do you have any recs or not? <laughs> yeah, I have a recommendation. On Amazon Prime, there's a film called Election, which is uh, Alexander Payne's second movie with Matthew Broderick and Reese Witherspoon about a high school election. And it's a, a great dark comedy. It's so funny, so well written, and so well directed. It's a, a fantastic satire. Uh, you got to check it out. It's called Election. I recommend it. It's it's, it's so entertaining. I I had seen it before, but then I watched it recently again, and I just adored it. So who's our biggest fan of the week? So biggest supporter of the week is a tie between Danny Crombie and Cowan MC Monagle. And these two great fans of ours made renditions of our, our logos, our album covers, basically, of the show. So Danny made this great color graphic of us, of our new logo that you all see on on Apple Podcasts and everything. And then Cowan did one of our old logo of the Indiana Jones style. He made a great sketch about us. So thank you so much for those sketches. There are on Instagram. So if you guys want to check them out, just go, go look at the page. Love y'all. Before we continue, I have to tell you all about MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. They have teamed up with us to offer a very special promo code. Use our code Raiders15 at MoviePosters.com to get 15% off your order today. If you're checking out our show on YouTube, which we hope you are, you can see that our set is decked out with these amazing posters. James has a bunch. I have a bunch. They they ask us whatever we want, and we pick out movies, and they send them our way, and it's, it's a great relationship we have with them. They're an amazing sponsor of the show. They have all sorts of framing, backlighting, pretty much every movie you can think of in their selection. If you're a fan of TV, if you're a fan of films, there's no better way to express that love than by decorating your place with a ton of movie and TV posters. Again, use our promo code Raiders15. That's Raiders15 at MoviePosters.com to get 15% off your order today. Now let's get back into Prisoner of Azkaban and Sirius Black. And so Sirius, I think, would probably be my favorite character in the Harry Potter franchise. And the first half of this movie, Sirius is such a mystery to us. And it's a great mystery throughout the whole entire film. Who is Sirius Black? 
Why did he escape Azkaban? Then we finally learn that what we think is the truth is that he betrayed James and Lily for Vol- to Voldemort and that he blew up an entire street full of muggles and Peter Pettigrew and escaped but was caught and has been in Azkaban since Harry was a, a child and a baby, but he finally escaped. And so the mystery is why did he escape and why does he want to kill Harry? Does he want to finish the job for Voldemort? And it's so fun when we're introduced to series just first through newspapers and posters on the wall, like that great long take scene with Harry and Mr. Weasley, where Mr. Weasley's warning Harry about Sirius Black and when he's going back to school to be careful not to go looking for him. And we just see the posters of Sirius Black just screaming into the camera. And they're everywhere all over the Wizarding World, these posters, these wanted posters. And I think that wanted poster is so iconic for this film and especially the franchise. I, I used to have a poster of it, yeah. I think. And it was so, so iconic because— It actually moved, too. Yeah, yeah it actually <laughs> moved. No, it didn't. <laughs> because we finally have a real tangible villain who's there. In real life, you know what I mean? The whole film. And as a person. Yeah, and so that's that. That's the first time that happened in the franchise. And Sirius, as we learn more, he, he breaks into Hogwarts, which is so cool and interesting. And, like, there's this great threat on Harry's life and all the students at Hogwarts as well. And, again, no one no one's leaving Hogwarts. Yeah. The, the, he slashes the portrait of the yeah. fat lady. And, and uh, by the way, the, the portraits were a great step up in this film as well because they made that more modern and more fun with all the portraits interacting with people. Yeah, especially how there's so there's that witch flying on a broomstick from portrait to portrait looking for the fat lady. And also, like, they're much more animated in the backgrounds. So there's a shot, there's a wide shot of the staircases in that scene when everyone's moving to the next level. But in the background, there's a giraffe walking from portrait to portrait and in each portrait it, it turns into a different size so it can be really big or really small and sometimes it's moving through multiple portraits at once and so i think alfonso Cuarón got very creative with how the portraits interact with one another yeah and interact with people too like when yeah. the one tells snape to like put that light out so <laughs> yeah, like yeah. they're so fun but, but anyways serious black honestly that sounds like a horrible existence to just be a portrait on a wall yeah <laughs> <laughs> but serious black breaks into the gryffindor tower and he tries to, we don't know it yet but he's trying to kill peter pettigrew even though Ron thinks he was trying to kill him and they think that he get the wrong bet or whatever. And so Sirius is just this present threat, but we're learning more about him through Lupin as well. And I think the Marauder's Map is a great artifact that Harry's like, he's collecting these great ancient powerful artifacts. He's got the invisibility cloak and now he's got the- Yeah, he's he's legit. The Marauder's Map, thanks to Fred and, jo- Fred and George. He's It's kind of like a video game as you're like building your repertoire yeah, yeah, yeah. of it's, tools and, and weapons. It's, it's like it's really Link cool. and Zelda. But um, that great scene is where when Lupin takes the Marauder's map, Lupin up to this point, everyone up to this point thought that Sirius Black betrayed James and Lily, even the Marauders, even Dumbledore, the Order of the Phoenix, they all thought he betrayed them. But up until this point when Lupin gets the Marauder's map from Harry after Snape hands it to him, and Peter and Harry tells him that he doesn't think the map fully works because he saw someone he knows to be dead, Peter Pettigrew's name on the Marauder's map. And Lupin is taken aback and it's Lupin's keeping multiple things from us that we don't know yet. And clearly he's emotional about the map and he also knows what the map is and knows how to read it. He knows how to unlock it. So there's some sort of connection between him and the Marauder's map. But it's up until this point that Lupin thought Sirius was a killer and thought he betrayed them. But now Lupin knows that Sirius was innocent at this moment. So it's great acting by, by Thulis. Yeah, and it's it's a very important scene. The Mar- the Marauder's map is so vital to not just this movie, but the future movies. And, and also Sirius is... Backstory explains why Snape, when he finds them and corners them, he's so um, enticed to make them suffer because he believes that Sirius is the reason why Lily died. 
And so that's why Snape is like looking forward to watching the Dementor actually actually do the Dementor's kiss on Sirius. And also for the torment that they went through. And in the books, I, I don't think they talk about in the movies how uh, Snape was almost killed by them because it was Sirius who messed the with— The prank. Who pulled the prank on yeah. Snape because Snape was trying to figure out what they were doing with the Whomping Willow. And James is the one who came to save him, but Sirius was the one who like— who enticed him to go to the Whomping Willow. Yeah, and so the Whomping Willow, they don't talk about it in the movie, but it's a place where the, the four of them would go. It was like a secret place where they would hang out. Well, the Whomping Willow was the guard to the Shrieking Shrek. Yeah, yeah. So they would use and the And they shrieking... knew the button. So yeah, Dumbledore had the had the Shrieking... Dumbledore had the Whomping Willow placed on the ground so that Lupin could go to school. He would go inside through the, the entrance to the Shrieking Shrek, which was the Whomping Willow, and then do his transformations alone in the Shrieking Shrek. But then his friends, James... Um, Peter. Sirius and Peter Pettigrew, they became anime guy so that they could do it with him and help him through his transformations. Yeah, yeah. What what was um? Sirius is the dog. Peter's the the, the rat, rat, and then Prongs. What was James? He was the stag. Stag. That's right. Prongs. That's right. Prongs. Yeah. Come on, guy. My bad. And yeah. so they would do that and help him with his transformations in the Shrieking Shack. And in the book, there's like there's a button that that uh, Peter Pettigrew would become a rat and he'd step on the button to mm-hmm. to calm the tree down. And it wouldn't move. I love the werewolf design in this movie because at this point we've seen so many werewolves in movies and traditionally they all would look the same. You know, like big, bulky, big, monsters. hairy, like terrifying. But in this film, I think uh, Alfonso came up with a, and the designers came up with a really unique and fresh take on a werewolf where it's not as gigantic, it's not so horrifying, and it still is a very, very um, humanoid-like ish, and it's it has. It feels more like a dog blended with a human than anything. It seems like to me that Alfonso wanted Lupin to turn to a werewolf, but not really gain mass. So he's very gangly and skinny. It's just like no gains, bro. No gains, bro. (laughs) (laughs) So how much mass you gained? The 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 werewolf is not bulking at this time. He's he's cutting. (laughs) So, but if you think about it, he's very skinny. He does a lot of cardio. Zero percent body fat, but it it seems like the the werewolf becomes just extend his limbs extend basically. He doesn't put on mass and and he doesn't he's not huge. But it makes it, it makes sense because if you think about wolves, um, like most creatures who hunt, they are all generally most of their lives are they're hungry and they eat big meals and then they 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 kind of starve until they can find a next big meal. So and so it makes sense that like. Most animals, except for, I mean, obviously like lions and big animals like that, but wolves generally, especially if they're a lone wolf, they're very skinny, and coyotes are very skinny because they they eat so so few times and they gorge. Yeah, meals. they gorge. Yeah, exactly. So they're intermittent fasters. I love coyotes; they're yeah. really fascinating animals. Yeah. So yeah, it reminds me like they I think they were inspired by wolves and coyotes in the design of the creature, and also. It seems is it it's he's like almost completely hairless. He has like yeah. some straggly yeah. hairs, but I like how he doesn't. He's not covered in coats. But that's what fur. I like about it. they like it's human. Like, they it's like they stretched a human body and yeah. they kept like what like why does the werewolf always just become enormous like the Hulk? Yeah, why not make it seem more realistic? So like if you actually transform, why how would you gain all this mass? Yeah, how would how would your muscles grow so you wouldn't be bulking? <laughs> <laughs> no creatine. That wolf is not hitting the gym, bro. Yeah, exactly. And and I I love the third act of this movie. I think it's the thir- best third act of all the films, except for you know Deathly Hollows doesn't really count because it's just like so epic. It's kind of, it's hard to compare to how how much is going on in that film? Well, if Delphi House Part Two is literally just one giant third act. Yeah, exactly. The whole movie is a third act yeah. of like a movie. But I would say the third act in Deathly Hollow starts when 
Harry learns of the Snape's memories. You could say that's the third act's turning point. No, yeah, for I mean yeah. for the movie, but if they yeah, were, yeah. if they were combined into one film, it's yeah. like when they jump off the dragon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a good point. So that would obviously be the best third act, but this act is so brilliant because we get to travel through time. Yeah. It's so it's such a fun way to experience time travel and explains why Hermione is able to go to like 65 classes at once and and she, she, they showed little hints of her wearing that necklace although we didn't think anything of it at the time and Harry and Harry and Ron kept noticing that she keeps showing up out of classes but all the teachers know that she's using the time turner and Dumbledore gave it to her and McGonagall actually in the oh, book oh, gives it to her. Oh okay, gotcha. But I love the third act how they it's you've seen the time travel play out before, but to see it in this world with these characters in this setting and how Hermione and, and Harry have to sneak from scene to scene, not to be seen by anyone, especially themselves, and and they save Buckbeak's life, and it's such a brilliant um, ha second half of the film. I, I think that's why this movie is the best film because of how much fun the third act is. Actually, yeah, the third act is nonstop yeah. and it's complete action in in very fast pace. I made an entire list of all the plot points Ooh. of the third act because it's sick. So this is the insane nonstop third act of Prisoner of Azkaban. It starts at the execution of Buckbeak, Ron taken to the Whomping Willow by the Grim, the Whomping Willow battle, the Shrieking Shack with Sirius Lupin, Pettigrew, and Snape, and the truth is revealed, the werewolf attack, the Dementor's Kiss, which is prevented by a mysterious person who casts the Patronus on the lake to save Harry and Sirius. The time-turner scene when Harry and Hermione travel three hours back in time, saving Buckbeak. The werewolf scene where Buckbeak saves them. Harry saves himself and Sirius by casting the Patronus on the lake, saving Sirius from himself, and then getting back to the hospital wing just in time. We'd like to take a moment to do our Patreon shout-out list for our top-tier patrons. We're so grateful for everyone who is a patron. For top-tier patrons, get buckled in to hear your name. Patreon helps pay for our show. We appreciate every cent we get from you all, and we love you. Justin, Caleb Fleming, Michael Caranja, Riley McDonald, Nate Moore, Harry Roscoe, Harrison Ball, Caitlin Signorelli, Travis Ball, Nicola Simeona, Jacob Kostler, Dennis, Jorge Chavez, Caleb McFalls, Ken Bolin, Dennis, Aaron McCardle, Sal Guarnera, Max Rosk, Tyler McDowell, Lauren, Grayson Younts, Cole Carroll, Christopher Tunnel, Tanner Teagarden, Madison Yamarillo, Barrett Compton, Andy Walker, TJ Rollins, Andrew Lukler, Nick Sheridan, a.k.a. Sherry, Hunter Smith, Carter Brandon, Nicholas Ozaniak, Timon Hayashi, Caitlin Callahan, a.k.a. Sharktooth, Sarai Rogers, Charles McLaughlin, Brandon Smith, Ethan Storm, Devin Udarium, Lucas Key, Derek Noonan, William Calimano, Mariam Alley, Hayden Polkinghorn, Christopher Zabo, Byron McLellan, Brooke Shanks, Stephen Gatos, Zach Kormanick, Griffin Mythical Beast Cornelson, Simon Tooze, Brittany Underwood, Jeremy Slattery, Jeremy Benavidez, Cody Moan, Samantha Steele, Frank Caraglio, Michael Kelly, Brandon Bernal, Dave Coburn, Josh Coburn, Joe Lopez, Rachel Von Den Heuvel, Justin T. Frank, Don Payne, Kayla McCoy, and Brian Barton. The, we think that the climax was the first version of the events, and that actually happens pretty early in the film. And then we get to go through the climax again from a different point of view. So there's so much story and action and conflict going on in this movie. And then also we get the grandfather paradox with Harry and the Patronus in terms of him seeing himself and like 
how did he know that he could cast the Patronus until he figured out that it was actually him because he saw it originally and then he's like, oh, then that gave him the ability to know that, oh, it was me the whole time. Yeah, and what I love about that scene as well is before he cast the Patronus and this is while they're back in time waiting for the werewolf and for them to come out of the Whomping Willow, only a very powerful wizard could cast the Patronus that powerful to bash away all those Dementors that were surrounding Harry and Sirius. So I think this is a great glimpse at how truly powerful Harry actually is as a wizard, no matter how modest he is and no matter how much he downplays his abilities. And I, I don't think it has to do with Voldemort and printing any power Me on either. him. Because I think that Harry naturally was born as a very gifted wizard because it seems as though all of the powers that he got from Voldemort are things like parcel tongue and the ability to have the connection with him. So I don't think that Voldemort gave him power in terms of his talent as a wizard. He just gave him new, different abilities. I think that Harry always would have been a powerful wizard. I completely agree because they hinted that earlier on the film in Harry's first lesson with Lupin when they're doing the he's doing the Bargard test with the Expecto Patronum spell, and Harry fails the first time, and Lupin's like, oh, if you did it your first time, that would have been amazing. And then he it's does like it. the Matrix yeah. rooftop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's literally the same thing, the jump. But he does it his second time, and Lupin says, that was so impressive, you would have given your father a run for, your, for his money. So his parents were very powerful wizards. His mother is very intelligent, too, and he gets the Quidditch talent as well. Yeah, I think Lupin, he, the way he could, he talks about Lily, it feels like Hermione, a very, yeah, very yeah. talented witch. And same with um, Slughorn yeah, in yeah, the yeah, Half-Blood yeah. Prince. So it seems like there were two of the, the best wizards in Hogwarts in some way, although James was a big troublemaker. And I'm sure maybe Lily wasn't as, like, uptight as Hermione, but she probably was just as intelligent and as passionate. Well, she's, she started to date James Potter, who she hated yeah, the so first few years yeah, at school. So. Yeah. so I don't think Hermione would date someone like James Potter. You never know. I mean, she did date Victor Crumb, kind of. Yeah, but Victor Crumb was a celebrity. Oh, so you're saying that Hermione, no, 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 Hermione no, no, no. shallow and only, no. like, famous men? No, no, well, well <laughs> no, Victor Crumb actually asked her... And Ron didn't. No, no. So. He's, he's a cool guy. He's, he's a Quidditch star yeah. and, and very, very nice. And yeah. he was always very respectful to Hermione. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say the Patronus scene is one of the best scenes in the whole franchise. It's so epic. And it's, gr it's great, great suspense. The way Quaron directed it because Sirius is literally getting his soul sucked out by the Dementors. And, and Harry's standing there like, when's my dad going to show up? And we're like, who is this wizard? Like, Because we don't know it's him. And we kind of believe that it's James in a way because it was a stag Patronus. And, and so we were like, it, who? when's this person going to show up? And then ultimately when he realizes that it's him, he just steps up and he's like, Expecto Patronus! It's pretty badass. It's so epic. What's also great about that scene is Harry barely knows Sirius Black. And Harry has spent the last the entire year thinking that Sirius Black betrayed his parents, was a killer, and was coming to kill him and wanting to kill Sirius Black himself. And then in the Shrieking Shack, when we finally learn the secrets, when Sirius and Lupin reveal the truth to them, and then they they bring Pettigrew back from his Animagus spell to be a human and with the rat features because he's been a rat for so long. And then Harry learns the truth, and he understands that Sirius Black is the only family he has. He learns that so quickly. And in that tunnel, when they're walking through the, the tunnel to get back to the grounds, and they had that very nice conversation where Sirius offers him to live with him, and Harry's like, of course I will come and live with you. So they really only have a few moments together of being a godfather, godson with a, a kind relationship. And, it's, and that's all it takes for Harry to sacrifice himself protecting Sirius from all these Dementors and putting his life on the line and, and uh, possibly getting the Dementors kiss himself. That's because Harry... Growing up an orphan without and without love, once he 
learns that he has family, he becomes completely devoted to them. And that's why he sacrifices himself. And the sacrifice, like we said in the first film, I think is Harry's most defining trait as a character, his selflessness and his, his, his willingness to, to put his life on the line to save others. And it'll, he'll, it'll show up time and time again, eventually leading to allowing Voldemort to destroy the Horcrux within him by sacrificing himself to, to save his friends in Deathly Hallows. And so uh, Harry's desire to save others is his greatest quality. And he gets it from both his parents because both his parents sacrificed themselves to try to protect him. So Harry does the same thing many times throughout yeah. the entire franchise. And also Timothy Spall, I think, was perfect as is he's perfect as peter pettigrew and I love, oh he's an awesome underrated yeah, actor yeah he's he's a great british actor he's he's you've seen him in a ton of things as supporting characters he never really leads films he he led one film as uh the famous british artist who who painted uh seascapes and boats i can't remember his name but he's great in that movie but um he's a, a fantastic actor i love the design of peter like you said since he was a rat for so long and never came out of that form when he finally becomes a human again he has taken on rat-like characteristics his face has changed a little bit his nails and fingers are very rat-like and the way his hair is so matted and it's bushy and i i love the design of the character and peter pettigrew is a complex character just like all other uh, all of jk's character where he's he was friends to the potters he was part of that crew but also he was kind of like out of the four of them he was like the least cool of them all. Like he, they like kind of let him tag along. He was an admirer yeah, of them. That's he was what desperate to be their friends, and I think that they were all. He's so loyal to loyal to them. And the thing with Peter is, no, he wasn't. No, okay, my bad. I just, I, I worded not loyal. I didn't. He was obsessed, obsessed with them. Yeah, I didn't word it right. And he became loyal to Voldemort because Peter. Peter is probably the biggest coward we meet in all of the films except for like maybe um what's his name from chamber um the teacher the dark arts teacher what's his name chamber secrets oh gilder lockhart. lockhart big coward but you could say peter's a bigger coward because he betrayed his friends to save his own life and as voldemort will say that peter Pettigrew thinks that he's loyal to voldemort he thinks he is but voldemort understands that you're only loyal to me because you're so afraid of me. And Peter eventually, even though he thought he loved these people, he betrayed them all to save his life. And ultimately, it's a very complex character, and Timothy Spall is great. Yeah, and he tries to just throw every excuse at the book to try to get it out of the situation. He's like, you don't know the powers that the Dark Lord possesses. And in my opinion, I bet you the Dark Lord didn't even cast a spell on Peter Pettigrew, just the mere... Uh, threat of casting a spell of him, and he divulged the the secret keeper truth about where James and Lily Potter's house was mm. and where Harry was, and so betraying them didn't take much, I'm sure, from Voldemort. But and and it was a mistake by the crew to it was Sirius's mistake, yeah, to give Peter the secret keeper's uh, spell. Sirius was supposed to be yeah. secret keeper, but Sirius thought it'd be smarter to give it to someone to, like Peter Pettigrew, which Voldemort would never suspect that. So that that he would have it. That's yeah. why Sirius has a lot of guilt for what happened to James and Lily. Potter and that's why he wants to kill Peter Pettigrew so badly but I really want to talk quickly about why didn't Sirius escape from Azkaban sooner than this year in this book and it's explained in the books more detail but they don't really talk about it in the movies so everyone believes that Sirius Black is a killer and betrayed the Potters everyone in the world even the Order of the Phoenix Dumbledore all of them so even if he did escape Azkaban he'd have nowhere to go he'd have no purpose and so he'd never even had the desire to leave really and he'd just he'd be caught pretty quickly I'm sure and it's not until 
Cornelius Fudge in the book is on a visit to Azkaban prison and he sees Sears Black there and Sears is the only person who's really not affected by the Dementors and Sears sees the Daily Prophet around under his arm. He asks if he can have that copy of the Daily Prophet and Cornelius gives him the, gives him the newspaper and walks away. And so Sears goes through the Daily Prophet newspaper and he sees the giant photo of Ron and his family, the Weasleys, in Egypt after they won the lottery, the Galleon draw. And on Ron's shoulder is Peter Pettigrew the rat. And so then he really knows the truth and he realizes that I can catch Peter Pettigrew. I can, if I can't prove my innocence, at least I can kill him. Yeah, I, I think he thought that Peter was dead. At I this think so point. too. Yeah, I think he thought Peter blew himself up. But that's what's so interesting about Sirius in Azkaban, because like you pointed out, he was when Fudge was there. All the other inmates, they were completely affected by the Dementors. They had all the happiness sucked out of them, and they, a lot of them were mad. But Sirius was the only normally behaving inmate there because he knew he was innocent, and he knew that he wasn't guilty, and he, he knew that he was a good man. So Sirius always held on to that, and that's why he was able to, to fight off the Dementors' um, effects on him. Yeah, because the other ones were hopeless, and they were stuck in Azkaban. And yeah. also, he was able to escape because he was an animagus, and he, when he, when and animals cannot be affected by dementors like humans, mm -hmm. so he was able to just slip by them. Yeah, and so the, the the photograph presented with the opportunity of if I can catch Peter, I can prove my innocence and get out and become an innocent man again. Yeah. And maybe if not that, at least just kill him because yeah. it doesn't seem like he wants to prove that Peter was a person. He says he's because he's trying to just kill the rat. Yeah, 100%. maybe maybe he would have. But then, like, what's so great about the, the story is that so many things are established in the first act that come into play in the third act, especially Buckbeak, because the whole point of Harry interacting with Buckbeak and uh, Buckbeak uh, liking him enough to let him ride him becomes very important to helping Sirius escape at the end of the film, the, the ability to ride Buckbeak. So J.K. always sets up things like Easter eggs and nuggets that don't seem important in the first part of the story, but they all come into play. It's like the smoking gun. when you, In a movie, if you see a gun, you know that it's going to be used eventually in the film. And then also this movie uh, marked a very big change in terms of Dumbledore. Obviously, Michael Gammon was cast as the new Dumbledore after Richard Harris passed away. And it, unfortunately, I mean, uh, we all wish Richard Harris could have continued because he was, in my eyes, in a lot of ways, the perfect Dumbledore. But Michael Gammon, he stepped into very difficult shoes to fill. I think he did a very good job. I know sometimes people think that he might have been a little, especially in this movie, a little, and in Half Blood Prince, he get, he shows a little bit of a, a temper here and there, and he can uh, have outbursts. And, and in Goblet, like when he charges at Harry, but, everyone's so upset about yeah, that. But that kind of happens in the books. No, in the well, in the book, that that scene, people like will show the scene and then they'll quote the actual book, and yeah. he's like Dumbledore, like says, asks quietly, "Did did you put your name into the Goblet yeah, of Fire?" But yeah. it's a movie, so yeah. they have to change it. They have to bring suspense into the scene. Yeah, I think that. But I think what. Michael Gambit did bring that Richard Harris didn't have um, is the energy and the physicality because in the later books and films, Dumbledore becomes very active and especially in Half-Blood Prince, he does in Order of the Phoenix, the battles with Voldemort. I think that Richard Harris, I think he was so old, they probably would have had a stunt person and body double the entire time for those sequences. So ultimately, he did bring a, a lot more energy to the role, but he there's only so much you can do to follow up Richard Harris, I think. But he, I think he did a very good job. Yeah, and I mean, in the books, Dumbledore is described as having a surprisingly youthful energy about yeah. him and mobility. So, like you said, Richard probably wouldn't have been able to perform those stunts and a lot of those scenes that Michael Gammon does. Even 
in Goblet of Fire, like, Harry, did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? <laughs> like, Richard Harris probably couldn't have done that. Yeah, exactly. It, but I think he did a great job. And I love the wardrobe of Dumbledore. It changed in this film. Like, he's wearing a lot of purples. And the first film, they dressed Dumbledore as, like, what you imagine a wizard would look like. You know, with the big robes and the pointy hat, especially in, like, Sorcerer's Stone. But I think in, the, in these films... They 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 changed it in a better way. They made it more unique and probably more personable for his character traits because Dumbledore will learn is actually a very complex character. Yeah, and he's a lot more relaxed and he's he's a lot of fun in this movie too. He has the great opening scene uh, at at the Great Hall when he gives the speech and he's talking about the Dementors. But then it's just so fun when he he's in on like the time turner. He's like, you can save two lives yeah. if you if you work fast enough. Yeah. And he's like. Three turns out like smirking at them. So he's very he's very fun and playful in this film. Yeah, and I, but he also does show, even though he can be aggressive, he does show like that great Dumbledore quality of being just a kind, loving person, especially when all the kids are sleeping in the Great Hall. And then he says, Let's not I don't want to disturb them, just let them dream their dreams and get lost in like whatever adventures they have. So he he does show the sweet qualities of Dumbledore. I love um in the hospital wing after the first shrieking shack scene when Ron's leg is in a splint and he Dumbledore just, under, keeps, <laughs> he keeps touching his leg and smashing it. And Ron's like, oh. <laughs> it's so funny. And then but that's great because it's a contrast to Chamber where Hermione was stuck in the infirmary, and then this one, Ron's stuck in the infirmary. So Hermione gets a lot more story time in this film, which I think was great that uh JK, you know, switched it up both times like Hermione's out for that one, but then she becomes like the lead player in the next one. It, I think it works really well because yes, the trio is great, but it's it's fun and interesting to break the trio up at times because yeah. we learn more about the characters. Like we'll learn more about Hermione in this one, and then we learn more about Ron and Chambers. So it's it's fun to do that. Yeah, because they the characters they all have their strengths and weaknesses, and it's nice to see them on their own sometimes. All right, you want to do? I think I'm good on Prison yeah. Rascal. Want to do some superlatives? Yeah, let's do it. So who do you have for the MVP of this film? Alfonso Cuaron. Same pal, yeah. same. For changing the style to... for ma He basically made Harry Potter a new kind of film, and he set the stage for what would eventually happen. Yeah, and then David Yates kind of took on that and, and rolled with it with Order of the Phoenix on his first film. Yeah. But, I mean, Goblet, Mike Newell, very dark as yeah. well. So, But also, he he did the same thing where he changed the tone. And so yeah. what they did was just, what's the style of the year? Yeah, So exactly. the hair, the long yeah, yeah. hair and Goblet of Fire, that's like, that was was hit. Yeah. Uh, the best scene. Harry's Patronus when he stops the Dementors. It's a great scene. Yeah, great scene. I have either the Shrieking Shack when they learn the truth or Buck Bleak, Buck Beak's flight. Mm -hmm. It's one of those. I, I would say the Shrieking Shack. Yeah. It's just so great fun. Scene. Yeah. Great, great characters. We have a great cast at once. Like all those it's wild, those big players in there. Mm -hmm. What's the best shot? I love the last shot. And it's after um, Harry receives the firebolt from Sirius. And then he he and his friends, they run outside of the castle. And then they're like so excited for him to get on. And he jumps on the broom and he just shoots upwards. And then Alfonso Coran. He does a freeze frame, and you just see Harry's having so much fun, and it's just a, a such a great, fun, positive way to end the film. And I, I love the shot. Scorsese freeze frame, yeah. so classic. Yeah. I couldn't. It was hard to pick one because this movie has so many great shots and so many classic Alfonso long takes and and beautiful cinematography. But I think my favorite is when Harry is at the Leaky Cauldron in the beginning of the film after he's run away, and he's at the Leaky Cauldron. And he's in his room that he has at the hotel, basically. 
And there's a shot where, because what Alfonso did so so well with this film is he brought our world into the Wizarding World with these little things. And so there's a shot where it opens up outside the window, looking yeah. down at just normal human beings like packing fruit onto a truck or at like a fruit market, like getting the market ready. And then the camera uh, goes backwards through the window, and we have we see Harry's looking down at them. So I think it's a great way to bring our world into the Wizarding World, but also it grounds Harry to realize. I'm a member of both of these worlds, and I know them so well, but also, like, this is my true home being here in the Wizarding World. I think it's just a brilliant shot. Yeah, it's a great way of showing how the Wizarding World is hidden right in plain sight. Yeah. And also, that visual motif of going through the glass is something that I think happens in every other film after this. Because Chris Columbus almost did it in the second in the second film during the um, the uh, Madame Hooch's scene. No, no, not Madame, the, the garden teacher. What's her name? Madam Hooch? Oh, I mean, <laughs> uh, Professor Sprout. <laughs> Professor Sprout. During her class with the Mandrakes, the way um, Columbus starts the scene is we're up in the sky, and then we go down into the greenery, but there's an open window that the camera moves through, whereas Alfonso literally just goes, travels the camera right through the actual glass. I think he does it, he does it multiple times yeah, in this movie. Yeah, but in, in all the following movies, that moving through glass shot happens at least once in every movie after this. Yeah, he does it. Uh, Got to do it like five times yeah. this movie, I, I feel like. I think it's like a visual motif. They all made a trademark. Yeah. It's a great shot. Best actor. Daniel Radcliffe. I think he really came into his own in this film. His performance is exceptional. He's He really just like takes the leading role of the trio like by storm. He was their friend! <laughs> <laughs> he was their friend! <laughs> I picked Gary Oldman because yeah. he he has I mean such a major transformation and I think he's perfect perfect as Sirius Black he's great best line he was their friend <laughs> <laughs> just because it's so funny <laughs> mine is I solemnly swear that I am up to no good oh good line yeah. that's a good one Classic. nice all right you want to do some fun facts about Prisoner of Azkaban I would love to Sir Ian McKellen turned down the role of Dumbledore, having appeared as Gandalf appeared, appeared, having appeared as Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. He said, I had enough trouble living up to one legend. That would be too much to hope for. He also stated it would have been inappropriate to take Richard Harris's role as the late actor had been called had called McKellen a dreadful actor. Oh, man. They must have been rivals in the, in the theater. World. Probably. The tattoos on Sirius Black's body are borrowed from Russian prison gang tattoos. They are markings which identify the person as a man to be feared and respected. Alfonso Cuaron also helped design some of the tattoos as well. And then Gary Oldman came up with the idea of what his hair would look like. Alfonso Cuaron had the idea that when the Dementors approached the Hogwarts Express, the rain would turn to ice. However, due to his thick Mexican accent, the visual effects team misheard ice as eyes. They went as far as to draft a storyboard which depicted depicted eyes falling from the sky, which they presented to a stunned Quran, who instantly corrected their mistake. Eyes. <laughs> That's like the fear of like wanting to the, communicate. Yeah, yeah. Like, the fear oh, of offending. Did he say ice or eyes? Uh, the, let's just the, make eyes yeah. fall from the sky. Yeah. <laughs> he's the boss, so they don't want to like get fired. Yeah, exactly. What do you mean ice? I want eyes falling from the sky. Yeah. <laughs> but Alfonso seems like such a sweet guy, just like Guillermo. So I'm sure like... But like that's, that's the thing. Some people like... They don't want to offend, and so like they won't communicate when they think they should. They're just happy to be working on the movie. Yeah, yeah, eyes, yeah, eyes. Sure, oh, we'll put eyes everywhere, Alfonso. <laughs> <laughs> put eyes on your eyes. 
So like we said earlier, Alfonso, he's known for long camera takes. He's known for shaky handheld camera work, documentary-esque style. And he would have actually done that for most of this film. But Guillermo del Toro, his very good friend, another Mexican filmmaker, he convinced him to, yeah, throw some of those in, but keep it pretty pretty uh, small. Uh, just a few of those shots. But he recommended use more steady cam, crane shots, more dolly shots, and keep the camera a little more static as a way of keeping in tone with the how the filmmaking was for the first two films. And so keeping it a, a visual balance in terms of what the camera is actually doing. In Prisoner of Azkaban, costume designer Jani Tamaim wanted to establish a color scheme for the outfits of each of the three main characters to further define the characters' personalities. Harry's clothes consisted of neutral colors such as gray, white, and black, as she felt Harry wasn't entirely comfortable in his skin and therefore would not wear bright colors. Ron's clothes consisted of warmer tones such as brown, orange, and red, reflecting the fact that his mother used to knit sweaters for him, and the style is still in him. Hermione's color scheme, consisting of blue, pink, and beige, was meant to balance out Harry and Ron's colors and to also show a bit of Hermione's feminine side. Ron's fear of spiders was actually explained by J.K. Rowling, and she said that his fear stemmed from a traumatic experience when he was three years old. In retaliation for Ron having broken Fred's broom, Fred turned Ron's teddy bear into a spider. <laughs> Imagine that happening to a three-year-old. <laughs> so it makes sense. <laughs> when the Marauder's map is opened for the first time, the name Newt Scamander can be seen. This is meant as an Easter egg, and the, the filmmakers had no idea that Newt would have his own franchise, obviously, but it's fun to look at. And also curious, like, I wonder what Newt was visiting Dumbledore about, because they were they ended up being uh, good friends. Yeah, and also there's that that glimpse of two Hogwarts students who are very close. Yeah, their feet are entwined in so, a very adultish way. Who knows what they're doing? They might that. have been uh, making out in a broom closet or something more. Who knows? <laughs> you know those teenagers, man. <laughs> That's all the facts I got. What about you? Yeah, we, we could do a thousand facts, but I think that that that's good for me. I mean, that wraps Prisoner of Azkaban. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. Become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Head on over to our website, RaidersOfTheLostPodcast.com. Check out all of our content, merch, and stuff. Subscribe on YouTube if you're watching. Follow. Hit the notification bell wherever you're listening. Thank you so much for tuning in. Lumos! Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.